right, guys. Well, welcome tonight. We have an amazing guest joining us today, uh, Jared Towers from Basitology. Jared's an amazing researcher up north, um, does a lot of great work, and we're thrilled to have you on, Jared. So thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to chat with you guys. That's great. Great to chat with you, Jared. Uh, so I'm going to just jump in really quickly. Um, we'll tell a, a quick story. So the last episode when we talked about our winter uh, travels and winter whales, uh, I forgot to mention one of the stories. And Jared, you were with us uh, down in Cabo. Uh, and one of the coolest stories that experiences that we had down there was we were sailing uh, towards Cabo. I don't know, we were maybe 10 or so miles away. And it was really late in the day, and we came across a mom and calf. And it turns out, it I think that it, it was probably, I mean, when I say newborn, I mean, I, we were talking, it may have been maybe an hour at the most. Uh, really, like, very foldy and wrinkly, not coming up to the surface on its own, being lifted up by mom. Um, and mom, mom had some, some suitors nearby. Yeah, she certainly did. Um, it was, there was a lot of splashing going on and, and, you know, like you said, that calf was just so apparently new, you know, it seemed to have a, a hard time surfacing and, um, perhaps not a hard time, but just that it, it was very new to it. You know, the way it was coming out of the water, mom was helping it at times. It's blue was curled over on the tip still, um, yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing sight to see that. But with all those escorts um, circling around the moment calf, uh, that was something else altogether. It was it was really cool. And then um, you got some some drone footage, and we'll try and post some of that in the in the show notes. It was really cool that mom wanted nothing to do with with the male escorts. Um, she was busy with her calf, and she had her pec fins completely extended. Um, for a while. That was pretty cool. And I think by the end, it, it seemed like the calf was kind of getting the hang of it. I, one of the things that I vividly remember when we first came on scene there, I wasn't sure if that calf was alive because it would surface. And you couldn't really hear the exhales. And then by the time we left, maybe an hour or so later, not only was the calf starting to swim on its own, but when it would come up to the surface, you could clearly hear exhales going yeah seeing it from above with the drone was was something else i you know i was i was somewhat in awe and then you know trip got his drone up and and flew over them as well uh, before we left and uh you're right i mean that pack was fully extended um and just seeing the vigor with which those presumed males approached the mom and calf uh was was awesome um it was also a bit terrifying you know thinking how is this mother balancing these pressures, the pressures of being a new mom, looking after this kid, and also having to deal with these other animals? Um, you know, there's there's a, this brief period of fertility after uh, most mammals give birth, and, and that's quite likely what those uh, other whales were interested in. Um, and then once, uh, you know, lactational amenorrhea kicks in, it, it kind of goes away when she starts nursing. So there's there's just a, a brief window there. and uh, and I was surprised to see that. I, you know, I, I don't know if, if any of us had, had really seen anything like that before. I, I think it was new for all of us. Um, you know, Jeff, I know you spent some time with humpback whales at lower latitudes, but, you know, you were even saying, you know, seeing these big groups like that uh, chasing each other around was, wasn't something you've seen, you know, in with such large groups of animals. Yeah, we had that competitive rowdy group uh, a few days prior to the, to the, seeing the newborn and I had never seen, I mean, there, there were well over a dozen animals in that group. I'd never seen a group that large, uh, mm. you know, pursuing a, a female and I've never seen, I've seen very recently born calves, uh, in the silver bank, but never anything that brand new that was, that was so clearly, you know, an hour or less, you know, or may, maybe at the most a couple hours, I've never seen a newborn that young. It was really yeah. incredible. Yeah. I I was trying to, you know, get some context for it after I got home because I was thinking, you know, um, are, are, are we right to think that this is what was going on? And, and unfortunately, I found a, a couple papers by uh, Nico Ransom um, published in Marine Animal Science recently. And, and 
Yeah, exactly. That this kind of stuff has been seen before in Mexico and, and in other places around the world where where humpbacks uh, breed and mate and calf. And um, yeah, it's not uncommon for the groups of males to get really aggressive with a mom and calf. And there's even been a few uh, calves showed up dead, and and it was presumed that they died from aggressive interactions with these males. In fact, there was even a, a few, just a few years ago off mainland Mexico a, um, a calf that was hanging out with its mom, a fresh calf, and uh, a bunch of escorts. Um, and people observed that calf getting killed uh, because one of the adults breached on top of it. And, wow. and that was the end of it. Wow. So, yeah, it, it can be a lot worse. I, I was hoping that we'd find that group the next day and, yeah. uh, and just verify what had happened to them. But we, we couldn't find them. They were out there somewhere, though. Yeah, so many humpbacks. They were, we would never, never found them again. Um, and we'll we'll have to head back down there and and find the killer whales next next time. Absolutely, yeah. So that's a, a good transition um, into what what you're working on, and you're up in in Alert Bay, and and you run uh, Bay Cetology. Uh, tell us a little bit about about that. Sure, yeah. Home of the killer whale, Alert Bay, uh, traditional territory of the Nungis First Nation. Um, yeah, so Basitology is is a small organization that uh, we incorporated in 2019. I've uh, got a small office here in Alert Bay. Um, you know, throughout the 2010s, um, I was mostly involved in, in three other organizations. A lot of the work that I uh, do and, and did at that time as well was through Fisheries and Oceans Canada as a cetacean research technician. Um, but I was also a uh, a founder of the Marist Marine Education and Research Society and a founder of NIMSA North Island Marine Oil Stewardship Association and executive director for some time. Um, and, uh, you know, what I found myself doing, though, is I was on all these research trips and uh, and a lot of the, the focus was on species or in parts of the world where none of these other organizations um, could be used as uh, as an organization to represent the work I was doing. Um DFO, for example, has no authority outside of Canada. MERS and NIMS are very British Columbia based. So um, it made sense to, to have another organization to house some of the work that I was doing under um, and also just provide opportunities for, for further work, um, you know, uh, outside of the purview of, of these other groups. And, and so, yeah, Basitology was, uh, came about. And yeah, since then, we've been really busy. It's, it's been a, a great little journey the last four years. Yeah, it's been great following along and just seeing everything you guys are doing. I, I always look forward to the updates you guys have on online and seeing what's going on for sure. Yeah, and we we're very dependent on your uh, <laughs> uh, on your several times a year published uh, updates to the the big ID catalogs. Yeah, it, well, same. I mean, there's so many changes happening so quickly in that population right now. Um, we're we're overdue for an update. I'm hoping to get it out this week, but the challenge so far has been that there's there's new calves in a couple of groups and we're just not sure who they belong to. I mean, one is in the 68 seas um, and uh, there's definitely a new kid in there. I don't know if it's belonging to 68 C or C1 or, or what. Um, so we're going to have to wait for another encounter. And then the 46 Bs uh, showed up with a new one. And, and um, you know, it, it, maybe it belongs to 46 B, maybe it belongs to 46 B3. I think we're going to need another encounter or two to figure that one out. So, um, yeah, and then we've got a number of other calves, like uh, I think 6986 is in there and um, a couple more that uh, that we've got to include. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get that out soon. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, that's great. I just start, I just finished updating all of our catalogs for the boats here, so um, I'll, oh, look for, I'll look forward to updating them again shortly. Um, mm-hmm. And today, actually, we had the first episode of Cetacean Sessions um, and... Oh, it was amazing. Um, and you're, you were involved, you are involved with that, right? You hosted it last year. It sounds like whale scientists are hosting it this season. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a really great, um, great resource for people to like tune into and it's free. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. It's free. Um, <laughs> why, why not check it out? <laughs> um, free and great information. Yeah. yeah. The patient sessions was, was kind of a pandemic baby. Um, you know, we, I, I had a paper published on this. This is a whole other story. I won't get into it too much. But while I was down working in the South Atlantic one year, I 
I documented all these um, giant petrels preying on live sperm whales and um, got in touch with a friend of mine in the Indian Ocean and a colleague, and he got me in touch with another colleague who um, manages some fisheries observations data in that part of the world, and they had seen the same thing. So we got together, we published this paper in Polar Biology about this this unique behavior, um, because there's really, at that time, there was only other one other similar case known in the world where these kelp galls attack right whales off Argentina. Um, and uh, and since then, it's been observed once, uh, a few times actually in Australia with silver galls and humpback whales. But um, really unique kind of predation events. And uh, and I got asked to go on this um, this series called Seabird Sessions, which was like a, a Zoom meeting just to discuss new papers on seabirds. And Gary and I were talking about it, and and uh, and we're like, you know, we we should do something similar with cetaceans. There's so much good cetacean science coming out. Um, there's so many people interested in it. You know, Crowdcast is such a good platform. And uh, yeah, so we did a couple seasons, had a number of awesome guests. And then, um, you know, Gary Sutton and I are, and the rest of the team as well that helped make that whole series possible. Tasley and, and Elisan, we're, we're all going in, in all these directions right now and have got a lot going on. So we got in touch with um, our colleagues at Whale Scientists and, and they we're really happy to to put the third season together. And today was the first episode of the third third season, and it was awesome. Um, a, a great session. That that's fantastic. And we'll we'll post some information in our show notes on on the after the breach podcast website, so that people can can get links for that. Yeah, it's just such a great resource. Um, you know, so many people are are interested and maybe not like as involved in the whale community as we are. Um, and so having like these kind of unique, uh, topics to like listen into every once in a while or regularly for several seasons is an awesome, awesome resource for them. And for us too. I learned a lot today. So yeah, me too. And then you also have a Patreon site. Is that right, Jared? So one of the things we like to do is connect our listeners to, um, our guests and, and find out ways that they can help support the research that you're doing and, and that. So do you have a Patreon or is there a way that they can support basitology? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both. Um, yeah. We, well, like I said, we've got a lot of stuff happening and um, we have a website, you know, that anyone can go to and, and see some of the projects we're working on right now. It's basitology.org. And um, a couple of the main projects, you know, we, we do a lot of, Field work. Um, we're also doing a lot of office work, working on different projects um, between our students and staff. Um, and um, you know, we also build tools for use by um, field researchers uh, as well as uh, the general public, uh, people who are interested in whales, whale watchers. Uh, we have developed a Northern Resident Killer Whale ID app. Um, we're also working on a uh, an open access big scale whale database we can talk about a little bit later maybe but um yeah for anybody who's really interested in supporting this work uh you know we can uh, go on basetology.org and accept uh donations there uh through paypal and there's also a patreon account that i set up recently which i've been having a lot of fun with um i've been posting so much content there because you know, I, I find uh, Facebook is great, Instagram, uh, Twitter, but, uh, you know, Patreon, uh, we don't have a lot of uh, patrons at the moment, but I just feel a lot freer to share our content there because it's it's a closed system. Um, and, you know, naturally, because we're on the water, you know, two or three times a week, uh, working under permit, collecting photographs and, and drone video, occasionally underwater video, not only in BC, but also in different countries. Um, it's really easy to put a lot of that content up there. And and so we have four different tiers. Um, people for $5 a month, they can sign up and get uh, encounter summaries and photos from our noteworthy encounters. Uh, for $10 a month, they have access to the same, plus our uh, underwater and aerial footage from uh, our events. And I, I just posted one today, actually, from an encounter two days ago. And it was it was remarkable. I mean, having that aerial perspective, is so amazing to be able to see things that you think are probably happening um, and you, you have thought have probably been happening for a long time but never really known for sure. And then you get a, an eye in the sky and it, it all becomes clear. 
Um, you know, I've watched killer whales chase sea lions lots of times, but I've always thought that these these animals use a seafloor to their advantage to try and escape uh, the whales at times. In this case, there was a group of sea lions, and and they were actually they actually came over to the killer whales along the seafloor, and you, you could see this happening with the drone. Um, I think because they wanted to check and see where the killer whales were, and then of course when the killer whales saw them down there, they started following them along, and and uh, it's a remarkable game of uh, cat and mouse that took three hours and eventually ended in the death of one of the sea lions, but the other five got away. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you can wow see that that's crazy. In the video. That um, sounds the other unbelievable. Two, yeah, it was pretty crazy. The other two tiers are one for 25 a month where people get access to everything, um, as well as uh, some insider information on some of the projects we're working on, um, upcoming papers, and, and some of the the uh, questions, some of our, our field work and you know data curation raise uh, potential projects for the future. And uh, our top tier, we only have a few spaces and only a couple spaces left at our top tier is uh, 100 a month. And, and those people are, are just very generally supportive of our work and are able to, to join us in the field uh, virtually or in person uh, at least once a year. So, um, so yeah, it's been fun. We're, we're building Patreon up and, and enjoying it as we go. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Well, we'll put some links in our show notes so people can find that more easily. Um, All right. Right from there. And But yeah, um, well, moving on, that... Um, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about yourself and before we dive into this awesome topic that we have talking about type D killer whales, but, um, yeah, just a little bit about yourself would be great. How, how'd you get hooked on, on the whales? <laughs> it's like, a yeah, drug. well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it happened pretty young for me. My, my parents, uh, my dad, my stepmom owns a whale watching company, uh, up here in Alert Bay since 1986 and uh, I think it was one of the first whale watching companies in Canada and yeah they had to or they still have the sailboat they don't use it for whale watching anymore but I was a 44 foot sailboat and and I just go along with them every day um, we had day trips they'd, they'd make food on board and we'd sail and look at whales and porpoises and eagles and, and stuff so um, yeah I just kind of fell in love with the natural world you know and, and the water working on the water um, there's also a, a culture of, of research in this area. I mean, um, Orca Lab isn't too far away, and there's a lot of others, you know, doing research for the government or, you know, for their their um, uh, their own personal projects or university or a variety of other things in this area. It was kind of a mecca for killer whale research back in the 80s and 90s, and still is, um, but and even the 70s. But yeah, in 1987, Mike Big had just finished publishing his um, first killer whale photo ID catalog. And so as a young kid, I was, you know, using that book. And then when, when John made another edition of it in 1994, John Ford and some of the same other authors, um, we were all very excited about that. And, and then again in 2000 and, um, you know, and as you both know, when you spend time on water, you get to know the animals really well and they, their lives just become so fascinating. So following the, the lives of, of certain families over multiple generations is, has been amazing. And I, I guess, you know, I don't really know anything else. Having spent my entire life, you know, just doing this kind of work, it, it's, just, it's just been what I've been interested in, what I've been doing. So, yeah. What, what an incredible way to grow up and what an incredible area to, to grow up in. It's, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in, in, uh, on yeah. earth, uh, up in, in Johnstone Strait and Alert Bay. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's a special spot for sure. There's nothing quite like it. So um, before we jump into the type type Ds, and this this might you this might be the harder harder question for you than any of the guests we've ever had on on here. Um, <laughs> we always like to ask people if they have a favorite or most memorable um, encounter that jumps out to them. I mean, obviously there's those of us who are on the water, there's never just one, but we always like to ask our, our guests if there's uh, a, a special encounter they want to share. Uh, um, and it could yeah, be from, I, from anywhere. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to filter that. I, I could give you three. Um, <laughs> um, 
yeah. It, 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 sometimes it's more about the journey than the actual encounter itself. And I've had a few epic journeys, um, you know, and, and when you finally find what you're looking for, um, it, it's really hard not to enjoy that deeply um, after you've been through a lot to get there. And I, I can think of a few interesting cases, um, you know, one after spending a long time, you know, getting down to uh, the southern tip of South America and then spending several weeks at sea getting down to Antarctica and finally finding some killer whales um, and, you know, finding them doing interesting stuff. You know, that, that's, uh, that's, always, that's been pretty amazing when that's happened uh, once or twice. And But, yeah, closer to home, I mean, we had an epic uh, journey find, trying to find a right whale a couple of years ago. Wow. Um, you know, we had a lot riding on this on this field trip. It was the first of its kind that we had we had ever put together, and um, we were really going off of limited information. You know, we we just looked at whaling data and the other uh, four encounters of, of right whales in Western Canada since 1951, and most of them were in the spring off the west side of Haida Gwaii. So we went up there and. Um, on our second to last day, we we found one after putting like I think close to two thousand miles under the keel wow. um, at about twenty to thirty knots. You know, just looking around, going way offshore and up and down the west side, and um, so that was pretty epic. But yeah, if we're going to talk about Type D, I I can't forget that either because that was uh, something else. I think if we just went out and found Type Ds, like you know, it would have been um, one thing, but we we went through a lot just to just to find those those whales and uh it was getting down to the wire you know we were all feeling pretty beat down and we had uh we had one day left and we beat our way out there and uh and they were waiting there for us it was amazing that's incredible and we we talked last week on our our episode with with David, who goes down to Antarctica in the in the winter, about uh, the the seas that you have to go through, and I can't imagine how long. So let's let's get into the Type Ds, um, kind of segue through through your your journey down there. Um, what's what are the conditions like? We're in you know roaring forties and and uh, I can't remember what the fifties are called. Furious 50s. furious fifties, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something else for sure. I mean, probably the worst seas I've ever seen has been off Cape Horn. Um, and, you know, thankfully on this type D trip, we didn't get into seas like that, uh, you know, but because we were in a smaller vessel, we were in a, a 75 foot sailboat. Wow. Um, and it, yeah, even when it was blowing 25, 35 knots, that was, we had to, we had to go, you know, we had to make it work. Because I was about as low as it got, and you know, with with winds like that, you know, you're dealing with three, four meter seas plus a lot of chop on top, um, and then you know it picks up a bit more, and you you got to run and hide. I mean, we, there's this little island kind of southwest of Cape Horn called uh, Isla Diego Ramirez, and we had beat our way out there, um, not specifically to this island, but there's a there's a drop off west of that island where it goes from relatively shallow you know just several hundred feet to several thousand feet really quickly and that's that's kind of a popular edge for patagonian two fish longliners and some of those boats have had a few encounters with type d killer whales there so that was we were thinking if we're going to find them we might want to check out that area um that whole shelf edge is a spot where they've been seen though um, and beating our way out there in 25, 30 knots of wind, we had to uh, um, we had to take refuge behind Isla Diego Ramirez because um, all of a sudden it started blowing 35, 40. Um, there was blowing spray, uh, and you know we actually couldn't stay there because it got so windy and the seas got so big that there was no point just trying to even find refuge there. We so we set sail in the middle of the night. And we sailed backwards around Cape Horn um, in about 40, 45 knots of wind. Wow. Um, we just had a little sliver of, of sail up, and we were doing 14 knots um, <laughs> downwind, just running for our lives. 
Um, and when we got back to the safety of, of the closest anchorage of the next day, um, we sat there for eight days straight while it blew storm and hurricane force winds. And, uh, yeah, we, we just sat there thinking this, we're, we're never going to get back out there. And, uh, after eight days, we had this little tiny little weather window and we, we beat our way out there, uh, with our bow right into it, into, you know, three, four meters, 25, 30 knots. Cause we knew that that was about as good as it was going to get. And, uh, we beat our way out there. We got out there at, uh, about 5.30 a.m., um, I, I got up because I, I did the math and I, I knew that we were going to be on the spot about 5.30. And I got up and Bob was already up there. So was the captain. And, and then uh, Captain Ben, he just said, what's that? And uh, I looked out the window and yeah, about 200 meters off the starboard bow, I held up my binoculars and I was like, right there. <laughs> We could honestly, we could only see about four or 500 meters in the conditions. I mean, they weren't great, but these whales were, were right there. Amazing. Um, that is incredible. Yeah. So before we go too far into it, I mean, they're rarely seen. Tell us about who, who are they? Who are type Ds? Where are they found? Um, mm-hmm. how, how rare is it to see them? Sure. Yeah. So, okay. I, I guess it's best to start in, in the 1950s when, uh, you know, there were some killer whales that stranded in New Zealand and there was a few photos taken and it wasn't for many years until anyone thought much about how different they looked from any other known killer whale. And that person happened to be Bob Pittman and uh, someone who spent a lot of time researching killer whales around Antarctica and, and just uh, being interested in, in a lot of odontocetes and and seabirds and fish and a number of other things, having spent so much time on the water. And, and so, you know, he, he knew about this stranding and how unique these whales looked. And, and then some of the folks from the Crozet Islands who, uh, who were collecting data on uh, cetaceans in that region, in particular in regards to uh, depredation, because there's a Patagonian toothfish longline fishery around the Crozet Islands, and some of the fisheries observers there had photographed these same animals. And uh, they showed, uh, Christophe Cunet showed uh, some of these photos to Bob, and he said, that's those whales, you know, that stranded in New Zealand. And then over the next few years, with the onset of digital photography and, and Antarctic tourism, um, more and more encounters started started coming out. And uh, my first time down in Antarctica was 2009, 2010, and I had recently bought this this Marine Mammals of the World Comprehensive Guide to Identification, which was published in 2008. And there's a little section in there about these strange-looking killer whales. And, but it said, you know, there was not much known about them. And so, yeah, just on one of the last trips that I had made down to the peninsula, or um, from, yeah, from southern South America down to the Antarctic Peninsula and back, we had a sighting of these killer whales. And we mentioned just a few photographs and uh, I was on board. I was a, a marine mammal lecturer um, for that uh, half season. I think we did a few trips back and forth, and and I was I was thrilled having you know actually just laid eyes on these whales. So I sent the photos to Bob, and and it happened to be only the sixth confirmed sighting um, outside of Crozet of, wow. of this killer whale, and uh, it's just really interesting to you know to make those observations and. And that's all we could ever really hope to do is continue just collecting photos and behavioral um, anecdotes from people who'd seen them. And so, yeah, Bob um, also just having spent so much time um, sailing in those waters and having not seen them himself was was very um, dedicated and motivated to, to try and lay eyes on them and, and doing what he does best to, to try and get some biopsy samples so that we could, for the first time, uh, look at how they compare to all the other killer whales in the Southern Hemisphere. And, and they do, I mean, they are unique looking. Uh, they do look different from, very different from the killer whales up here. Absolutely. Yeah, they've got these really blunt foreheads. Uh, they've got these little teeny weeny eye patches. Uh, some whales just have basically just a little sliver or even not much of an eye patch at all. And their dorsal fins are are all somewhat pretty, you know, pretty similar. They're they're, they're very pointy and back swept, um, and unlike a lot of you know high latitude southern hemisphere killer whales, they don't have any dorsal cape at all. 
Um, so they're, they're very distinct morphologically from any other killer whale on the planet, especially those that they're sympathetic with, uh, the type A's, the type B's, and the type C's. Fascinating. And I will post some photos um, in the show notes for people to look at so they can see and they can also um, look up the paper and search, I'm sure, for type D's as well, um, <clears throat> just to see these whales because they are so morphologically different. But you guys eventually got out there and found these whales. And tell us about the encounter itself that you had. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention that, you know, in 2017, we, Bob and I tried to find them as well, um, going down on a trip uh, for three weeks. And, um, you know, and it turns out that same vessel that we've been on found them on the next trip after we went home. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so that was brutal. Um, so in 2019, we were, we were pretty motivated, but, you know, Bob and his wife, Lisa had put together a, a really great team. Um, I, I feel fortunate that they asked me to come. I mean, I was thrilled and, you know, there was, uh, Beck Wallard from Australia and John Totterdell from Australia, Mariano Cerrone from Argentina. Um, and yeah, and then the uh, captain and the crew of, of the, the vessel that we chartered. Um, yeah. So what, when we found them, it was one of those wild moments where all of a sudden they were there and then we just went full panic stations. Um, you know, it was also extremely early and everybody was, was not feeling great. I mean, we, we'd been through probably the worst night of our lives to get out there. Um, so people were kind of in that weird situation and you might not know if you've never been there before, but it's somewhere between like half alive and half dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we stormed through the boat yelling type D. Um, that got everybody uh, feeling a little bit more, <laughs> more than half alive. Um, and yeah, we, we grabbed our gear, cameras, you know, warm clothes, crossbows, and we got out on deck. And, and when we got on deck, they were all around us. I mean, they were just wow. totally interested in, in what we were doing in their home. And, uh, they, you know, maybe they'd never even seen a sailboat before, you know, those, those waters are, are not the kind of place that most sane people go in, in small boats, <laughs> <laughs> um, for, for recreational or other purposes. So, yeah, you know, there was a lot of them, um, with the data collected from the, the toothfish fishermen in that area that, that thankfully we've been collecting now for a few years, um, there's just under 30 in that group. And I've been going through all those photos and naming them all. And, and that was a, the same group we saw. We, we figured it was about 25 to 30. Um, going through all the photo ID data later, I ID 27 of them. Um, and I think there's, I, I think there's 29 in the group. So there could have been a couple animals we, we didn't photograph or, you know, might have died at some point prior to us seeing them. So, yeah, they, they were... Um, we couldn't tell exactly what they were doing. I mean, it, it wasn't super clear uh, other than that they were kind of interested in what we were all about. Uh, Beck being an acoustician, she, she dropped this uh, really cool custom-made hydrophone in the water, um, decorated with GoPros, and we towed that behind the boat. And as soon as that line was in the water, I mean, those whales had kind of lost a bit of interest in us, and they, they were popping up about 300, 200, 300 meters away after a long dive. And th- that's where they were currently. This this apparatus went into the water, and within three minutes, they were all back off the stern of the boat, wow. swimming around. It. Wow! Wow! They were like, yeah. yeah. And, and this might be what you kind of expect from a, a group of killer whales who makes part of their living by stealing fish and fishermen. Sure. Right. Uh, right. Right. You know? Yeah. So they were really interested in that line, and um, and because it was decorated with GoPros, uh, that got some amazing underwater footage of of them close up of their faces and. Um, you know, they were all traveling in one big group and yeah, so we spent just, uh, I'd say two to three hours with them and, uh, managed to get uh, a few biopsies. Um, Bob got a, a couple biopsies. The first one was uh, D90 and, and then I biopsied D92. And then we got a third one, um, that, I, I, I'm not sure we photographed too well, so it's kind of hard to tell who it was, but, uh, yeah, with three samples in hand, um, we also had a bit of an extension on our weather window. And, uh, and we just thought, well, if we're ever going to get to Antarctica, this is this is the time. So we got to get out of here. And we just we basically set sail for for the peninsula, which was uh, 
you know, going to take us a couple of days to get to uh, through the uh, open seas because we still had three weeks left after that. It was a six-week journey, um, and uh, we we went down to Antarctica and did some work with Type A's and Type B's after the D's. And and was that that was the, your only encounter with the Type D's on that on that journey? Is that correct? Certainly, hope to find them on the way back, and we we went back to the same area, but they weren't there. Well, I also wanted to add, it's a good thing that they can uh, distinguish between uh, Patagonia toothfish and GoPros. <laughs> I know. I think they were trying to. They were like, these aren't fish. Well, so you guys collected a few samples, and I went through and read the um, paper that just came out, that study led by Andrew Foote, um, the type D killer whale genomes reveal long-term small population size and low genetic diversity. Just mouthful there, but um, an amazing paper to read, uh, probably way above my level of understanding because I'm not <laughs> just, yeah, well, I've had a cold and I also not up on all the methodologies. So, but really interesting to read and, and highly recommend other people check it out as well. But tell us about the samples, what the study revealed, and um, there were some interesting, interesting things that came out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm no geneticist either. I mean, you know, especially when it comes to Andy Foote, um, you know, his, his methodologies and, uh, you know, the, the insights that, you know, his uh, work provides into, you know, our understanding of killer whales and their evolutionary history. And, um, it's, it's simply amazing. I, I, I can't follow along when it comes to describing, you know, how, how he comes up with the answers he does, but, but I, I, you know, I take them at face value and, um, and it's amazing just reading the the results of, of this kind of work. Um, yeah, so you're right. There's a low genetic diversity, and, and it looks like, you know, like a lot of other killer whales that type these went through a severe population bottleneck um, at some point. And when you're you're looking through a lot of photo ID data of these animals from different oceans, um, and you, you can kind of see that this might be the case because they're, they're really all morphologically quite similar um you know even the adult males and adult females there's there's not a lot of difference in saddle patch shape or dorsal fin shape um you know you look at other populations of killer whales by comparison uh type a's are a good example um or even big killer whales and you get this wide variety of saddle patch shapes and um, and dorsal fin shapes, and it, it may be because these populations are just more naturally panmictic. You know, they they might just be open to um, mating with with other you know killer whales um, that from different regions uh, all across the board. I think those populations of type A are probably naturally a lot larger and more widespread, uh, maybe a bit more versatile, being generalist predators, and, and so that predisposes them to you know, higher genetic diversity. Um, type Ds, on the other hand, we don't know a lot about um, their life history traits, but um, we, we do know that they love to eat fish and that other marine mammals will occasionally travel with them from time to time, which which indicates that they are a dietary specialist, you know, just like our resident killer whales here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah, and, and so if you think about that over, you know, uh, the long term, um, and uh, and you know that might have had something to do with with uh, why they they've become so uh, so prone to to mating within their own small group of individuals. Nevertheless, they've still managed to figure out a way to become quite widespread and and perhaps even abundant compared to other um, inbred populations. Yeah, and one of one of the interesting things um, I saw in the paper was looking at like where that bottleneck potentially occurred in like time. Right. Um, so the type D it seemed like it was pre Anthropocene. So like when we think of like Southern residents or even the Scottish killer whales that uh, have experienced this bottleneck due to human causes, most likely um, it seems like potentially the type D experiences bottleneck before, before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they, in that sense, they've had a lot longer to figure out how to deal with, with this inherent problem. And for them, maybe it's not even a problem at all. I mean, we don't really know enough yet to, to, to know. And that's probably a good thing. You know, we, we do know that 
some of the, the killer whale populations we know the most about happen to be the ones that are, are most affected by human impacts and the ones at the most risk of extinction. Um, type Ds may be inbred, but uh, they're widespread and there's there seems to be a lot of them out there. So, um, yeah, they've had a long time to figure out how to make it work for them. And, uh, you know, I, I can't help but find it interesting that, you know, the three individuals who we biopsied were related. That's, uh, that's something that we thought was probably going to be the case. But the two of them were full siblings. Um, you know, we don't know that 100%, but it, it is stated in the paper that it's quite likely. And full siblings in killer whale societies are are not common. Um, you know, that indicates that, you know, it's a, a mother um, uh, breeding with the same male over and over again. And if you think about a mating system like that, then, then that could very easily predispose a population to become inbred. You know, it may, it may have been a force driving it, or it may have been a result of it happening in the first place. But in any case, the paper didn't get into it too much, but I, I can't help but think about um, that when I when I look at these results, because they are very unique. Yeah, very fascinating. Definitely, yeah, it sparks more questions. A- absolutely, because it's like you said, they're, you know, they're, they have found a way to make it work, and maybe it's not a problem for them. It's, it's just interesting to think about, because we would... We would automatically assume, well, this is this is going to be a big problem, um, but but they're like you said, they're widespread. They seem to be making making this work for them. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. I mean, they're still out there, and um, yeah, uh, we we just don't know a lot other than that they love stealing fish from, from fishermen, <laughs> and, and they're and they're good at it. Yeah. They're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well. At the end of 2022, and I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, it seemed like right as this, uh, from what I from what I heard, uh, right as this kind of study was wrapping up, uh, there was another stranding of a type D in Chile. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that the samples from that will kind of provide some more insight. Will definitely should provide some more insight. But um, the samples from Chile versus the ones you guys collected versus the skulls from New Zealand. Um, what you know? What could we look for, or what will be looked for in that? Well, yeah, I mean that, that is a question, really. Is um, you know what to do with that sample? Um, I, I think the first thing that Andy and his team will probably do are, are run it through the same kind of analyses as, as these other uh, samples, um, just to see how they compare. I mean, it's it's quite likely that um, that they're going to show the same kind of results. But if they don't, then you know they'll they'll broaden our insights of of this population. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the main things that's really nice about that stranding, from a human perspective at least, is that it it provides a, a potential type specimen. Um, you know, the the animals that stranded in New Zealand, thankfully, a, a museum uh, collected a couple of the skulls, and they were able to get genetic data from those skulls by, by drilling out the hard part of the skull and you know, you can get DNA that way. And, and they did some years ago and that's part of this study as well as comparing the, the biopsy samples we collected to the individuals in New Zealand and finding they're, they're very similar uh, genetically. But, um, but in this case, there's an entire specimen and it's fresh. Um, and yeah, so Looking at that, unfortunately, it was too far gone by the time it was collected to look at uh, stomach contents. Um, but uh, as far as genetic data goes, there's certainly lots there um, to, to use. And also, um, I'm not sure exactly who uh, is doing it, but uh, there, there will be a specimen there as well for, uh, Sweet. for someone if they want to use that in, um, in making a case for a type T as its own species. Yeah, I, they might be the, the first... Uh killer whale ecotype that that actually gets classified as their own species they may be um they may be there there could be um there could be some others before them depending on depending on how long it takes (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, i think we could make a a good case for you know bigs and residents being different species and and there's certainly you know, a, a geneticist has made the case for um, for some of the southern hemisphere types being um, split as well, and yeah, so we we leave it in their capable hands and, and see what happens because I, I think a lot of the ecological data has been there for so long. I mean, 
you know, we've we've known since uh, the 80s and 90s how distinct behaviorally and culturally uh, and even morphologically they are in some cases. But, you know, really, um, it, it's kind of up to the geneticist to, to add their data in at this point, too. Yes, and we are very appreciative of all their hard work because definitely couldn't do it without them. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating information. All right. So um, one of the things we noted about type D's is their strange appearance. And um, could that be a result of this like long-term inbreeding, small population size? What are your thoughts on that, Jared? Yeah, it probably has something to do with it to some extent. I mean, it's really difficult to, to say for sure, but, you know, inbreeding does affect morphology. Um, you know, this, this whole blunt forehead thing, though, I, I tend to think is probably better explained by by their evolution, you know, based on, uh, it, it's more of an ecological trait is, trying, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I, I think that simply because, you know, when I worked in the South Atlantic, I was able to put a tag on one of these type B killer whales, and, and they're also known for having very blunt rostrums. And that whale dove deeper than anyone thought a killer whale could ever dive. Um, you know, we just simply didn't think that this species could dive over a kilometer and come back up to the surface again within 12 minutes. Wow. Um, right. I remember yeah. reading about that and was like just blown away. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, no other killer whale that's been tagged, you know, type A's or residents or transients has, has really come close to that. And none of those whales have blonde foreheads. Um, however, we know that all beaked whales are deep divers. They all have blunt foreheads, yeah. um, sperm too. And so with type Ds having the bluntest forehead of all, the killer whales, and also living in these very deep pelagic offshore environments, um, feeding on fish, you know, which which don't spend a lot of time in in the in the uh, the mid water column in throughout the southern hemisphere. And it may be that type Ds also feed on squid and things as well, but um yeah, I, I tend to think they're probably deep divers and that, you know, that blunt forehead may have something to do with that. Um, yeah, that's that's just my, my personal thoughts. I'd love to, you know, see more research done around that topic and, and how that might, you know, benefit the, the diving capacity and abilities of, of those species. But I don't I don't know much about it and I don't know if anybody does at this point. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I didn't even think about the yeah. comparison to like beaked whales and sperm whales and that, and I should have, but oh, it, it makes just, sense, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 I didn't, didn't even think about that either, but it, it totally makes sense. Um, well, really quickly, uh, and feel free to just say pass if you want. Um, but late, <laughs> late last month, there was a mm-hmm. paper published uh, about the Southern residents and how inbreeding depression can explain killer whale population dynamics. So, um, those yeah. researchers kind of focused on, you know, Southern residents, Eastern North Pacific, so not type D and very different, you know, habitat, morphology, et cetera. But is there anything you think maybe we can compare and contrast or take from it? Um, the type yeah. D study, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's really interesting timing too, that, that both of these papers, you know, focused on inbreeding and killer whales were published around the same time. And I, I think that's an important um, and a, an important aspect um, because, you know, even though they both talk about these populations of killer whales, which are quite inbred, um, those populations are so different and and the actual messaging, you know, behind the papers is, is also probably quite a bit different. I mean, having gone through a lot of photo ID data on, on type D killer whales, you know, I know they're more abundant in southern residents um, and I, you know, having being inbred for much longer, um, it's quite likely that they're they're faring better. Um, so, oh, you know this this kind of landmark paper by Cardoso et al., um, which I've only read the abstract of at this point. Um, you know, it, it 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 published in you know one of the best journals in the world when it comes to this kind of stuff. But but I can't help but come away from reading the abstract feeling a bit uh, a bit depressed. Um, <laughs> and and. Uh, yeah, whereas I read the Type D one and I don't feel that way at all. You know, I I, I just feel like it's fascinating and that these whales have made it work. So if anyone else feels depressed after reading that paper in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution about inbreeding and southern residents, um, I, I think the important message, if I was ever to have one around it, is uh, is simply that, 
you know, there's so much we can do to help these whales. And just because they're inbreeding, it, it doesn't mean we should give up. I mean, we can focus more and, and double down on, on other things like, you know, making sure they have enough fish to eat um, and uh, making sure their waters are clean and healthy. Um, and, you know, and, and they'll figure it out yep. if we let them, you know. Yeah, they're resilient creatures. They're resilient. They're smart. Have to get out of their way, right? That's exactly right. I mean, there's and there's so much we don't know, but the thing that we know the most is we just need to get out of their way and restore their food supply, and they'll they'll do the 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 work. Yeah, and they they can. I mean, you know, killer whales just like people. They probably experience, you know, intergenerational trauma, and and that might be part of the southern resident killer whale story, having you know so many members of the community taken into the captive industry um, back in the 1960s and 70s. But um, you know, over time, um, you know that 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 those wounds can heal. You know, they they can learn to be functional again by looking after each other. I mean, they just. You know, there might be some time there where they, they have to relearn how to how to look after each other and and how to you know find their food and and uh, do all the things that functional killer whale populations do. But yeah, if we can just provide the habitat for them and, and give them some time, there might be some hope. Absolutely, I th- I think that if any species has has proven resilient and the ability to adapt. Uh, I think that is definitely killer whales. I agree. So Jared, we really appreciate you uh, joining us uh, before we depart. Uh, you're getting ready to, to leave on a field season. What's uh, what's, what's coming up here? Oh gosh, it's a busy time. I mean, we're, we're working on a few really interesting projects here, um, you know, that we, we can't tear ourselves away from, but at the same time, we've got six weeks in Haida Gwaii coming up. Uh, where we're going to be on the water almost every day. So thankfully, I've got a, a great team. Um, we're going to be, you know, dividing and conquering, you know, making sure that there's always um, some of us working on the projects while others are uh, are out in the field and then switching on and off um, as weather allows. So, yeah, six weeks in Haida Gwaii, we're going to be, you know, working in the Merlin, our research vessel, um, on the west side as much as possible, and we'll be working up on the north coast and also the east coast as well, depending on weather, looking for all the, the rarest and most wonderful of cetaceans that, uh, that Western Canada has to offer. If we can find another right whale, we'll be pretty happy. Um, you know, one of the most critically endangered whale populations in the world. But there's also a lot of other species at risk up there that, that we have a, a keen interest in, not only from basitology, but also especially from Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And, and uh, yeah, so we'll be keeping our eyes out for blues, says, uh, fins, um, and all kinds of killer whales. We've got at least four different populations of, um, well, at least five different killer whale populations that that turn up in that area from time to time. So fingers crossed. Well, good luck. Uh, can't wait to hear, hear how it goes. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on and, and get some updates. It sounds like an incredible journey ahead. I mean... I'll be honest, when we started this podcast, we're like, yes, definitely want to get Jared Towers on here. And we want to talk about all like all these amazing things that you've done and seen. So there's so many topics we could have you on to talk about, but you've got Anytime. a lot of yeah. work to do. So we, we can chat more. Um, and uh, as long as we have a successful you know trip up in Haida Gwaii, um, I'll have more for you. I'll have more for you regardless. But, so. <laughs> That sounds great, Jared. We really, really appreciate you coming on and, and spending, spending yeah. some time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you both. I appreciate it too. So that that was a great, great discussion. It was great, great having him on. Yeah, I'm a little bit like uh, meeting a celebrity, you know. He's a rock me, it was star. Like, yeah. I mean, he's he's been around killer whales his whole yeah. life. I mean, he's, he's done so much around them and knows so much, and he's traveled all over the world. And he's seen type D's. I know. Crazy. I mean, I would love to see type D's, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. Oh, you never know. You never know. But I don't know how often I'm going to go hanging out in the roaring 40s and, and furious <laughs> That's 50s. That's true. That's true. 
Sport. Well, before we depart and end and the episode, uh, we are running trips every day now, and so we have to clue everybody in on our recent sightings, and there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mentioned one uh, while we were talking to Jer- Jared, though I think it might have been before we hit record, but that group of 32 bigs in Boundary last week. Yeah, so we've been getting bigs, killer whales almost every tour. Um, I think 21 out of 25 or 20, 21 out of 24 tours in March. And so far we're, it's early, but we're batting a hundred percent on our three days in April <laughs> on our, our, our five days oh, okay, five. in, in, right. in April, but not just a lot of bigs, big groups of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have the amazing herring spawn going on up north. And if you guys haven't seen photos of that, like definitely check that out because it's been drawing a lot of life up there um, in the northern strait of Georgia and further north. Um, But yeah, we're seeing these huge, huge groups of bigs and it's just been incredible. We have some familiar favorites that have shown back up over the last week and a half, two weeks. Uh, The T-65As. T-65As are back. And not with not with. A5, though. A5 He's is... He's been with 124C. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cruising so around. The the continuing saga of 65A5. Yep. And then uh, Big Brother just showed up a couple days ago. Yeah. T65A's Big Brother. T63 Chainsaw. So he he does, you know, show up this time of year. It's, it's funny because we were talking about, like, people ask frequently, like, oh, do you see the same whales all year round. Well, we see the same type of whales, you know, big killer whales we'll see throughout the year. Um, but there are families that kind of have almost like a calendar, like T65As usually show up the last week of March, first week of April. Chainsaw and mom usually show up right around this time and we'll see them for a couple of days. And then it's like, well, see you next year. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not familiar with, with that, we talk about the T65As quite a bit. So T65A's mom is T65, and she spends a lot of time up in northern BC and southeast Alaska with her son, T63. Presume, I mean, Chains- presumably, presumes, but... Yeah, right, right, presumably. Based on long-term close association. Um, so T63, if you're wondering, uh, he was... Um, not not seen as a, as a newborn calf, like with her, so we can't be 100% for sure that... He's her son, as far as I know, um, but presumed son. Right, based on how they yeah. work socially. Yep. And uh, we'll post some some photos in the show notes of, of T63, uh, and you'll understand why he is chainsaw. And Sarah finally got to spend some time <laughs> viewing him years. after years. <laughs> I mean, he, he is, even though he's on this somewhat regular calendar, it doesn't mean it's easy to go see him right. because... You're still talking about a big region down here, and you still have to have it timed right. Weather has to be good, right? And so, Sarah, like I've been, I've gotten to see him the last few years, but you haven't. It's been years for you since yeah. you've seen him. Yeah, the last time was I think early twenty. Well, it was twenty twenty one, I think, because the border was still closed with Canada, and we went. <laughs> We went all the way up into the Strait of Georgia on Imagine. So it was a long trek up there. <laughs> and he was like a few miles over the border. So you could kind of see him coming up. And I was super excited. And then he never came over and we had to go home. <laughs> that was my last time seeing him. Yeah, that's that's, that's until funny. now, until now. Well, and he's so iconic that when word spreads that Chainsaw has been seen. I mean, it, word news. Spreads. it was in it the was news. It was in the news. Yeah, it was in in. uh Canadian news and, and and Seattle news and yeah. uh, and it was like that a couple of years ago too. I mean he's he he makes headlines. He does. He does. Um, what was fascinating to me, Jeff, and you were on the trip with me when we saw him. He was hanging out with T forty nine A one Noah. Noah is huge, 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 like uh, as big as chainsaw. Yeah, it's that was the for me the coolest part of the encounter was seeing the two of them. Side by side, really close together the entire time. And they're both very, very big killer whales. And I mean, he's a whale that I've seen grow up. Like, I didn't see him as newborn, but I, you know, saw him as a young whale in his sprouting years. And man, yeah, to, he's, he's a big boy now. <laughs> to, to me, I like, I feel that he's one of the biggest killer whales that we see. And whether that's actually true or not, 
he he maybe he's not, but he sure looks like it. Yeah, and he's not one where like when a passenger says, "Well, what's the biggest killer whale that you see out here?" I don't immediately think Noah. You no. know, I think Galliano. I think Rainy. Right. <laughs> Right, you don't. But, but, but I'm gonna now, have but, to start thinking about Noah now. A, a, absolutely, absolutely. So we we had uh, that's T49A1, and almost the, all the rest of the T49As were there, except T49A2, Noah's younger brother Jude, who was hanging out with his uncle C, T49C. Yep. And they've been hanging out for a couple of weeks now. They have been, and they were at least, and they, we saw them a lot together in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, so this is a 16 year old, uh, male and hanging out with his 25 year old uncle and just the two of them and cruising around San Juan islands. Uh, really, really neat to see. Yeah. You had a cool encounter with them in Lopez sound the other day. I did. They were just kind of doing circles. It was kind of a little bit of a rough weather day. Not, not the kind where we would cancel a trip, but it, it was the kind where like, you're kind of limited where you wanted to go. And it's like, you could do it in some areas if there were whales. Um, and they just happened to be, come on, Jeff, it wasn't like Cape Horn. So it, no, it was not. <laughs> but what was really cool is these two whales were in like the nicest water. If I could have picked like, yeah, let's do the whole trip there. They just were doing circles. It's, it was almost like they were circling a bay. Yeah. Um, and it's not because they care about the weather Right above the the surface and 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 the waves. I mean, these are animals that go into the roaring forties, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a question for you. Yes, I was not on the water that day. Okay, I was sick with a cold. Um, do you think that they kind of changed their course because J Pod spent all day coming down San Juan Channel? I don't think so because they eventually ended up going out into Rosario. Oh, interesting. Um, and they ca- they were pointing that way a few times, um, and then they doubled back. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think they were. I don't know what they were doing. They were just doing their own thing. Well, for part of it, they they definitely looked like they were. They took a little bit of a nap and, and were, <laughs> Who were in, Who in a little re- resting line with the two of them. Nice. All right. um, but at one point, they did like early on. Uh, I think they they grabbed something to eat. Because we didn't really see it. It wasn't very flashy, but we did see a lot of birds coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they just were enjoying the scenery of Lopez Sound. Nice. All right. Well, that's good. But you mentioned J-Pod was, I mean, this is how fast things change on on our tours. We were going to go get some very, very far off, like half mile looks mm-hmm. at J-Pod because they were almost right, right out outside in front the of the harbor. Mm-hmm. And as I was leaving the harbor, a report came in of killer whales coming through Thatcher Pass and I was like, well, let's go see who that is. And it turned out to be 49A2 and, and Uncle C. But J Pod went down San Juan Channel. I mean it literally took them all day. All, like, day. all day. So f- for people that were viewing from shore, um, either on San Juan Island or on Lopez Island, they had it great because yeah. they had like all day J Pod. Yeah. And playful social J Pod. For, for the entire day. Yeah, I, I um, you know, was on the couch, fairly miserable because I'm kind of a weenie. Um, but, but I saw them in, you know, in Cattle Pass and I was like, oh, I should get up and go down there. But I'm sure by the time it takes me, you know, half an hour to get down there from my house, um, they would be gone. Which normally that would be the case. And right? they weren't. They stayed. They were all, there for like, what, day. two hours, I think, yeah. in Cattle Pass. Yeah. The, uh, or some of the videos that I saw were amazing. That people posted from shore were yeah, really Yeah. So incredible. check out, like, Monica um, posted a video on Orca Behavior Institute. So go check that one out. Um, just uh, incredible. Yeah. I, we didn't get to see. We were with uh, 49A2 and 49C. And, and then, so we did see the rest of the 49As further up north mm-hmm. a couple of days ago, including... Um, the youngest, the little kid, the little kid with, with the underbite, little underbite, little underbite. Like, like Charlie Chin T one. Yeah, so we're 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 calling him or her Charlie. I mean, in in honor of Charlie Chin, yeah. I think that's yeah. And well, and that name works okay. for whether it's a, a boy or girl. So, um, yeah, but Jays are down in the sound again today. Yeah, down. They've down been there, making yeah. rounds, so they've been in the sound and then up here and then up north and, um, yeah. So it seems like they're finding something. Yeah, it's interesting. They've been a, around a lot in over the winter and early spring, and 
over the last few years, this is about the time where they head out west and disappear for until like July. Yeah. So we'll see what they do this year. It'll be interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting to see. Um, you know, we had that report of K's and L's in Monterey Bay a couple of weeks ago. Um, I saw some photos of them with salmon on their heads. That was amazing to see. Good to see that they were finding fish down there. Um, K45 was seen looking good. Um, so it's it's all in all. It's hopeful. I yeah. mean, it's it's like Jared was saying, if we can get out of their way and get some good salmon recovery going, uh, restoring salmon habitat. spawning habitat. Make sure that the uh, ecosystem can support them. Absolutely. Especially uh, Fraser River. Columbia River, mm -hmm. uh, get some habitat restoration going there and increase the salmon run, the wild salmon runs. That is going to go a long way for them get, to get out of uh, yeah. whatever genetic inbreeding bottleneck they might be dealing with. Yep, yep. And, yeah, if anybody's looking for, you know, ways to help that, uh, there are some great projects to support. Um, the Klamath River dams in California are coming down. That's awesome. That's a big salmon-bearing river. Um, Whale Scout here, want to give a shout-out to them. Yeah. They're doing a lot of habitat restoration um, regionally. and We'll post a link to, to Whale Scout in yeah, our show notes. And as always, like, we're looking to rewild rivers where there are obstacles obsolete dams but we're still having to fight the government who wants to put up more dams so there are some new dams that want to be put up in washington um i will find some links for that to link into the show notes to you know use uh public comments when the periods are open and and just some more um, awareness on on that because it's kind of happening on the down low i like that term <clears throat> rewild rivers yeah that's pretty cool um, so I think that, that pretty much, did we miss anybody? I don't think we did. Oh, we always miss. I'm sure. But, but there's always <laughs> next episode Yeah. and that will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, not sure yet who we're going to have on, uh, in the meantime, if you want to come out on the water with us, we're running trips every day. Uh, Sarah and I with Maya's legacy whale watching, Yep. uh, we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, if you have any questions about anything we talked about on this episode or have questions about or ideas for future episodes, uh, you can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this a couple times, and, and I know we haven't made it happen yet, but um, I am collecting the questions that are coming in. Um, we'd love to do it like an FAQ or um, a listener questions episode where we're just talking about random things that you guys have questions about. So um, definitely email us with those questions or hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, we really do love hearing from you guys and, and answering those questions, too. Let's sign off here, Jeff. It's been great having Jared on, talking about uh, really cool killer whales. Um, and then, of course, our cool killer whales here at home. But thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. We look forward to um, bringing you the next episode of After the Breach podcast. And have a, have a great night. We'll see you later.